0: I want to invite you to grab a Bible with me this morning, or you can open that Bible app, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. But join me, if you will, in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to pick back up on this subject that we started looking at last week, of the danger of discrimination, the problem with partiality, the failure of favoritism within the community of faith. Because God's family is to be a place of radical acceptance and radical inclusion for all different kinds of people. And the thing about our culture today, though, is that we tend to love a good face-off. We love to uh, hear those words, let's get ready to rumble. We we, uh, love to go to a a fight hoping that we are going to see a good hockey game break out, right? Well, we're, we're a people who are used to butting heads. We are used to contention. It kind of reminds me of junior high and high school where uh, on occasion a fight would break out in the hallway and immediately there would be a congregation of students circling around. No teacher in America can, can command that kind of attention that's given by students when a fight breaks out in the school, uh, on the school property. Well, one of the most dramatic face-offs in the Bible is a, a, an occasion that happened and is talked about in Galatians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul talks about a face-off that happened between him and another one of the Apostles in the early church, a guy by the name of Peter. Now, they didn't actually get into an, a, a physical a fistfight or altercation like that, but Peter and Paul had a pretty dramatic disagreement We've got a, a, a map that we're going to put up on the screen here so that you can kind of get the context of this. But uh, Peter had gone from Jerusalem in the south up to Antioch, circled there in green, where uh, Paul and Barnabas had been ministering and where a great revival had broken out. And, and Paul had been called as a missionary of the gospel to the Gentiles. A, 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 this, the Antioch, a very Gentile city, And uh, the problem is is that some of the people down in in Jerusalem were not convinced that just any Gentile could walk into uh, into the family of God and by simple faith and nothing but faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ be saved and become part of the community of faith. And and so some of these teachers down in Jerusalem began to teach what Paul correctly identified as false teaching. What they were teaching is that the Gentiles could join the community of faith by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, but they also needed to do something else as well, that they needed to have faith plus circumcision, faith plus embracing the law of Moses. Well, Peter had come up to Antioch and he found, found out that there was this great revival that was taking place. In fact, Peter began to connect with these Gentile believers. He fell in love with these Gentile believers. And even as an Orthodox Jew, he began to sit down and eat with them, which was against the Jewish law. Peter actually did that for a while until these other Jewish friends of his came up from Jerusalem and said, hey, Peter, you're not supposed to be doing that. You are breaking the Jewish law, and we're going to tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives about it. Well, Peter didn't want to lose his Jewish friends, and so he began to separate himself from these Gentile believers that he had previously embraced. And you can just imagine this whole scene playing out in the fellowship hall of the church, In fact, Peter's mingling with everybody, but then these Jewish friends of his come up to Antioch, and Peter starts to separate himself from the Gentiles, and he moves to the other side of the fellowship hall. And you can maybe even imagine this bright red line painted right down the middle of the fellowship hall with a sign that said, Jews on this side, Gentiles on this side. Well, Paul ends up confronting Peter about this issue in Antioch, and it's the same kind of thing that James writes about in James chapter 2. Only James is talking about a dividing line, not between Jews and Gentiles, but fundamentally between the rich and the poor. Now, If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that James is painting a picture of the church as being a place of radical acceptance and inclusion. He makes it very clear that discrimination is incompatible with the gospel because Christ died for all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Discrimination is incompatible with the gospel. Discrimination is also incompatible with grace, which is at the heart of the gospel. And discrimination is incompatible with the unconditional love, a love that we have experienced from God and that we demonstrate to all people. James is trying to paint a picture here that, that there is nothing more unchristlike than a church without mercy. Uh, Psalm chapter 133, David, he writes these words and he says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And it's that kind of idea that James is trying to help us identify and live by as we live out the gospel in our community and around the world. Well, your Bible's open in front of you. I want to I have you notice what James says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Here's what we read. If you already, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of as transgressors for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but you but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about what I'm calling the superiority of mercy based on that last statement there that we read mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is greater than judgment. Mercy is victorious over judgment. In fact, in the first part of verse 13, James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. That basically, if you want to be shown mercy, you better show mercy yourself. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And James was obviously very familiar with his brother's teaching, as he references it, that Sermon on the Mount all throughout this little book of James. But this statement that James makes is the complete opposite of the statement that Jesus makes. Jesus pronounces a blessing on the merciful, James pronounces a curse on the unmerciful. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if I could paraphrase what James is saying in verse 13, the half-brother of our Lord says, cursed are the unmerciful, for they shall receive judgment but but i think that they are that, that we are, uh, can understand both from jesus positive perspective and james negative perspective that mercy is something that is very critical very necessary in the everyday life of those who are following after jesus christ now if we're going to be a people who show mercy we need to understand what it is and i think that that's a good place for us to begin what is Mercy. Listen, I, I, I've heard all kinds of different definitions of mercy over the years. Some have defined it and, or described it as not getting what you deserve. In fact, some, of, some have tried to describe the three big pillars of how God treats people by saying this, and we're, we'll put it up on the screen, but justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Now, I I think that that can be a good place for us to start because it shows us how God relates to us. That that mercy is something that we desperately need and mercy is something that we receive from God. But as believers, we're, we're also called to demonstrate that mercy to other people around us as well. Friends, it's not just about what we receive But we need to take some action as it relates to mercy. And we need to reflect the mercy that we have received in the relationships of the people around us. Mercy always involves action. It's something that we do. It's something that we give away to other people. Listen, mercy involves feelings. It involves compassion. It involves empathy. You don't show mercy unless you have compassion and empathy towards someone else. Uh, mercy involves a willingness to step into the hurt of somebody else it it means that you are going to get involved you can't uh, do like a lot of people in our world do when they pass by someone who is getting mugged on the street and just keep right on going and say i'm not going to get involved in that i don't have time for this no you've got to get involved If you're going to show mercy, the mercy of Jesus, then you need to step into the hurt. You've got to search out a way to relieve the pain, to relieve the suffering. And listen, we have opportunities to do that almost every day of our lives. Friends, I don't have to tell you, this world is a broken place. People are hurting. People are grieving. You know people who are struggling, and the question is, well... What am I going to do that, to, to look more like Jesus in the way that I react? What am I going to do to treat the people around me in a way that reveals this mercy that Jesus showed? I want to give you a brief definition of mercy. Here's what I think mercy is. Mercy is the love and compassion of Christ in action. It's the love of Christ, it's the compassion of Christ being lived out in our everyday lives. It's a willingness to identify a need and then to jump into the middle of that need in order to figure out some way to help by showing the love of Christ to someone who is desperately in need of it. The Bible teaches us, as we've already seen, that there is no partiality with God. But we also need to understand that God loves to show mercy and compassion to people who are in desperate need of it. In fact, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. He said, be merciful even as your father is merciful. But the question that we we just want to simply try to address here this morning is this. How do we do that? How are we able to be merciful even as God has been merciful to us? And just to kind of help answer that question, I want to offer four biblical suggestions here this morning. Four ways that we can reflect the mercy of God in our lives. The first just has to do with showing patience with the patience with the peculiar. Uh, Mercy requires patience with the peculiar. Now, peculiar, it's a a difficult word to maybe say at times, right? (laughs) But uh, it it just means odd or strange or unusual, abnormal, maybe even difficult. Now, I I know that you are not a peculiar kind of person, that there are no peculiar people here this morning. But uh, can I just say and be really direct here that not everybody that you know is just like you, right? Not, not everybody thinks the same way you do. Not everybody has the same perspective on life as you do. There are some strange people who are out there, amen? Amen. I mean, people who look strange, people who act strange, who um, have some strange ideas. And sometimes those people that you, that you are, those are going to be some people who come, who you come across in your path of life that I come across in my path of life. We, we use words to describe people like this by saying things like, well, they're different or you know what? They're, they're kind of strange. They're a bit unique. But maybe we even get a little harsher with the words that we use and we say things like, well, they're toxic or they're crazy. Around my kids, when someone's acting a little peculiar, maybe even one of them, I'll turn to them and I'll say, well, that's one way to live your life. And not to discourage you here this morning, but the fact is that there are some people who might think that way about you and about me. And what does the Bible say that we need to do in those situations? We're given one word, the word patience. Patience. It's not really a word that we like, but it's a word that we need. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I mean, Paul says, you know what, some people are, are going to be lazy, they're going to lack some motivation, others are, are going to just be overwhelmed with every little detail of life, uh, others are going to need help, they're going to find themselves in situations that they did not create, that they don't know, uh, that they've never been in before, that they don't know how to handle, they don't know how to get out of, and and Paul says, in each and every one of those circumstances and more, you need to show patience patience to all different kinds of people. Now, I want you to just think about that for a moment. And let me ask you this question. Are you patient with everyone? Because that's what the Bible says, right? Be patient, not just with the people who are like you, not just the people that you like to be around and that you want to help. Be patient with everyone. It's one of the really hard statements of the Bible and we need to learn to live this out in our lives because after all one of the fruits of the spirit is patience we need to be growing in patience we're not going to have all of it at the very beginning we need to be growing in it and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ then I hope that you can say that that's true of your life listen I think that I'm a more patient person now at age 45 than I was years ago at age 25. And I hope that I continue to grow in patience so that I can be a more patient person at age 55 and 65 and 75. We're a people who grow in patience. But we need to understand that God's ultimate desire is that we show patience with everyone. Especially those people who don't think, act, look, or react like us. And listen, here, here's what has helped me to become a more patient person over the years. Getting to know people better. Because what I've found is that you know the, the, the people that I'm most impatient with are the people that I really don't know very well. I mean, the truth is, is that certain people just rub me the wrong way at times. And I've struggled to show patience at times with them. But when I have learned some more things about their background or maybe some things that they've gone through in life or some trials that they have faced, knowing those things have gone a long way in helping me to demonstrate patience to them. Listen, hurt people hurt people. Those who've been hurt in life often react and respond to that by turning around and hurting other people. And when you know that, when you understand that, it can often be a catalyst in helping you to live a life of patience around people who are difficult and strange and even downright just different. You know... And so I I believe that in order to live a life of patience around others, you need to get to know the people around you better. To look beyond the externals, to dig deeper into what is really going on. Because when we do that, it often gives us a heart of compassion, which is the idea of mercy that the Bible talks about in James chapter 2. It's showing love to the unlovable. Kindness to those who aren't very kind themselves. In fact, Proverbs chapter sixteen and verse thirty-two it says, "Better a patient person than a warrior, one who uh, one with self-control than one who takes a city." So patience or so mercy requires patience with the peculiar. But secondly. Mercy requires forgiving the fallen. It requires forgiving the fallen. Friends, forgiveness is not an option for the believer. People that you know are going to make mistakes. They're going to hurt you. They're going to offend you. And we are called to forgive. In our society, people love a good scandal. Those are the leading stories in the news all the time, the most often clicked articles on the internet. Because what attracts people in this world today is division and hatred and unforgiveness that seems to rule the day. We're looking to just cancel people for anything and everything. And listen, the reality is is that people are going to make mistakes. They're going to do things that hurt you at times. But the question is, when that happens, how are you going to react? How are you going to respond when someone that you know, and maybe even someone that you love, lets you down? In our culture, we go to social media and we rub it in. We gossip about them behind their backs. We we talk to other people about them. We hold it over their heads, maybe even sometimes for as long as we know them. And and if that is the way that we typically react, that is not living out what the Bible says about mercy. We read this in Colossians chapter three, verses 12 and 13. Put on then, "...as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive." Look, Jesus has already said, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Now Paul follows this up and he says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's much easier for us to scream for justice than it is for mercy. We'd much rather criticize and complain and identify the faults in someone else's life And it's kind of an easy thing to do. I mean, anybody can do that. But what's Christ-like is doing the hard thing, learning to show mercy and forgiveness to someone who does not even deserve it. And the reason why we do that is because that's exactly what God has done for us. Listen, how, how many people here in the room today could honestly say, I deserve the mercy of God? I mean, nobody deserves the mercy of God, right? And yet God has chosen to show it. He's chosen to demonstrate mercy to you and to me, and that's why we need to be merciful and forgiving to other people. And if you have a tough time with that, it might be good for you to maybe just sit down and write out all of the really foolish and dumb things that you have done, even as a believer Because listen, when I think of all the dumb things that I have done, uh, uh, how I've fallen short of the glory of God, how I've rebelled against him, all of the wicked things that I've done in my life, it's just overwhelming. But then to realize that God loves me anyways, that he has never stopped loving me, that he never will stop loving me. I can't begin to tell you just how thankful I am for that. As the Bible says in Lamentations chapter 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The whole point of the scriptures is that if God has been so merciful to us, then surely we can learn To be that way with other people as well. In fact, we have to do that. The Bible says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Again, the context here is that we're talking about radical acceptance within the body of Christ. Radical acceptance means showing radical mercy. Showing radical mercy often requires showing radical forgiveness. Forgiving the fallen. Thirdly, mercy requires helping the hurting mercy requires helping the hurting and this is typically what we think about when we first think about showing mercy this idea of practical assistance of those who need help a few minutes ago we looked at first thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14 where paul said encourage the faint-hearted help help the weak you see Mercy is more than just feeling uh, sorry for someone. Although it, it, it's often where that begins. It, it's a heart of compassion. But, but that, that by itself is not Christ-like behavior. You, you've got to be willing to step into a situation and actively help to, turn, to try and alleviate that pain. To help with the heartbreak. Here's what we read in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16. The Bible says that it's not enough to just say that you love people, but you need to show it in your actions. You could maybe say it this way, that this is Good Samaritan theology. And you might not think that you're much of a Bible theologian. But just think, I think that everybody here today could say, I know, I'm familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan." And the point of that story is not all that difficult to understand. The point of that story is that God stops; God's people stop and help. That's good Samaritan theology, to stop and help. Well, we are to have compassion on those who are hurting. When the wounds of life are exposed so that we can see them, when we know that people are powerless to do anything about it, we are to stop and to help. Or maybe to put it in a bit of a more poetic way, we are to stop and stoop. Stop and stoop. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Gospels, how many times Jesus stopped and stooped? I mean, Jesus was a busy man, let's let's just all admit it here this morning. Most of what we have written about Jesus is that it all happened in like a three-year period of time. So for three years, Jesus is just moving and shaking. He is huffing and puffing. He is running and gunning. And yet Jesus is never too busy to stop and stoop. In fact, those two words are maybe the best way to describe his ministry here on this earth, that he stopped and he stooped. Jesus sees a blind man, he stops and he stoops. He sees a leper, he stops and stoops. He's uh, confronted with a dead child, he stops and stoops. A lame man, he stops and stoops. Disciples with dirty feet, he stops and stoops. That's mercy. That is a willingness to stop and stoop in order to meet a need. Now, ironically, in the story of the Good Samaritan, it is the religious leaders who don't stop and stoop. It's the religious leaders. It's the church folk who just pass by on the other side of the road. Well, who is it that stops? It's the scoundrel. The dirty, low-life Samaritan is the one who stops and stoops. You see, when Jesus told that story, it was like he was pointing the finger right in the faces of the religious establishment of the day. Because when he started out that story, everybody thought that they knew what was going to happen. They thought that these religious leaders were going to be the hero that everyone was going to be cheering for. But it was the scoundrel who looked most like God. And the one that, that would do would, would, uh, all, everyone would least expect would care to stop and stoop. And at the end of the story of the good Samaritan, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Go and do likewise. As you have received mercy, so show mercy to others. Because mercy requires helping the hurting. And then finally, mercy requires loving the unlovely. Mercy requires loving the unlovely. Can I just say it again? Not everybody is like you. And not everybody that you know deserves your love. Not everybody that you know is lovely. I guarantee you that there will be some people that you come across in life who will be very difficult to love. You won't feel like loving them and yet Christ calls you to love them. There will be some people who are going to say some mean things to you, and you are going to want to respond by saying mean things back to them, but you can't. There are going to be some people who are going to do some hurtful things to you, but you can't respond back by, hurtful things, by doing hurtful things back to them. No, you've got to respond with the love of Christ. When hurt people hurt you, you don't respond by hurting them back. And this is what makes Jesus' teaching so radically different from the world, so challenging. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward is that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? You see, God's greatest desire for your life is to be a reflection of Christ himself. And, and, and if you're going to reflect Christ, then you need to learn to love people who aren't lovely because that's what he did. And, and I hate to tell you this, but you were not—we're one of the unlovely people that he chose to love. You see, the, the fact that you were born as a sinner, that I was born as a sinner. That makes us unlovely in the presence of a holy God. And yet, he loved us anyway. And we are supposed to reflect that same kind of radical love to the people around us as well. When somebody criticizes you, you don't back into a corner and then uh, plot against them and figure out a way to get them back. Maybe instead you look them in the eyes and you say, okay, thanks for pointing that out. I mean, I'll try to do better next time. Maybe someone in your office is just always really negative and difficult to get along with. And so you bring them uh, some coffee or maybe you bring them uh, some donuts in the morning one time. And and you just show them some kindness. Uh, Maybe you you give them a compliment or maybe you do something for their birthday that you just try to show something nice to them. You see, you can choose to love others who aren't like you and who don't like you. You know, there's a story, a great story in John chapter 8. Jesus is just kind of minding his own business one day and this large crowd of men gathered together and they're dragging this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. And, And you might remember the story, but these men, they throw this woman on the dirt in front of Jesus' feet and and every one of these men had one thing in common. They, they all had a stone, a rock in their hands. Well, they, they point down to this woman at the ground, and she's crying. She's obviously in pain. She is scared out of her mind, thinking that she's about to die. And they say, you know what? Here's what happened. We caught this woman in the act of adultery. Jesus, you're a rabbi. You know exactly what the law says about this And so just give us the order and we'll stone her to death because she's violated the law of Moses. Well, Jesus looks at these men and basically he says, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know the law. I know the law. And you can stone her to death if you want. But here's what I want you to do. Let the guy who is perfect take the lead here. Let the person who is without sin throw the first stone. And then all the rest of us will just join in. And and we'll do exactly what the letter of the law says. But let him who is without sin throw the first stone. No, nobody moved. Nobody said anything. Nobody argued. Nobody wanted to debate. Because in that moment, they're all thinking about their own life. Which is actually a very good practice for us to have if you think about it. When you want to give somebody else something that they deserve after they have hurt you, it is better to reflect on your own life and to do what these guys were doing in that moment. And then there was a sound. The sound of one rock hitting the ground. And then another. And another and another, and another, until moments later, the whole crowd was walking away, and the woman is left there laying in the dirt all by herself. There are piles of stones all around, but no one threw one. Because they all had come to the realization that deep down, they were just as messed up as she was. Jesus looks at the woman on the ground, and he says, Well, where are all your accusers? Because there weren't any. And he says, I don't accuse you either. Now go and sin no more. He did not condone her sin. He said, no, get rid of it. But he showed mercy. When when he knew that she actually did not deserve the mercy, she deserved judgment. And friends, listen, that's what we're supposed to do as well. Because James tells us that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. I love the way that Benjamin Franklin said it, and we'll end with this as I put this on the screen. He said, when you're good to others, you're best to yourself. When you're good to others, you're best to yourself. And the Bible would say amen to that. Nowhere is that more true than when it comes to showing mercy to others. Because as James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we do this, when we live this out, we are reflecting the very character and the very nature of God. Let's pray.